Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. We're in the music room. It's Joanna and the maestro, her husband, Stephen Barlow, who knows everything about music. Joanna, me, knows very little about music, but loves it deeply. And I feel music through my veins. I feel I adore music. And actually, I go back to something that you once said to me, Stevie, because I said, what would it be like if you didn't have any music? And you said you would literally die. You said it'd be like not having any breath. Do you still stick with that? Yeah. No, so, I might have time to go and buy a small vineyard somewhere. But, um, <laughs> or take up rally driving in my 70s. Do all musicians like cooking too? Why do I know that? John Barbarolli used to cook, didn't he? He used to do great spaghettis for the whole orchestra. Uh, he, no, no, not no. the entire orchestra. But he inevitably, he always invited people back to his own home. And he would get the apron on and... Cook like a cook like a genius. Yeah, there are pictures of him doing it. You, you are absolutely right. Musicians do love cooking. They love actually the whole business of celebrating after a show. Also, when you're on tour, if you're looking for somewhere nice to eat with very little trouble, mm. ask a player. Yes, because they've all, always got it worked out. Yes. That's a completely different programme, which is where you eat after performances, both for actors and musicians. And, you know, we're all just abandoned, really. People have gone home and saying, wasn't that fun? Yep. I've got written down here, symphony. And I didn't put symphonies because when I did, you you snapped at me and said symphony. Symphony is obviously a Greek word, meaning what? Sounds I, at the I, same I, time you, or something? Definitions don't really help Well, it here. does mean, and I think it means sound, sounding at the same time. Very good. good. But that could cover, a, 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 as as we know with musical terms, it's a it's a catch-all, but it's stuck for a particular. Fasten your safety belt. Form. Go on. <laughs> because it's structured in a particular way, and all music is in some kind of form. Every pop song, every jazz song, every ballet, every every dance, they have a specific form. And sometimes it's very, very simple. You play a melody, then you play another melody, then you play the first melody again, and then you end. That's called ABA. And blues, for example, has these fixed forms, eight-bar blues based on three chords. Twelve-bar blues with a lovely middle eight. Yes, exactly. So a symphony basically was born out of collections previously of movements of either music for dance or music for the the court's entertainment. So you would have suites, which was a collection of movements, and each movement would be in contrast with the previous one. 
And when Haydn started work on his symphonies, and he wrote 104, he's called Papa Haydn the father of the symphony because 104 symphonies is a lot. But he fundamentally codified, classified a particular form. Is there a particular symphony from his great collection that you love specially? Well, I love the so-called Sturm und Drang symphonies between 40 and 50. I think I think they're hugely popular. I'm particularly fond, though, of Symphony 48, called the Maria Theresa in C major, with high horns and drums. Um, it's got Haydn's Joie de Vivre. <laughs> And the reason I said fasten your safety belt is that the first movement of a symphony was pretty much based around sonata form. And sonata means just anything that sounded. But we use the term for an instrumental piece. Mozart and Beethoven wrote, wrote, wrote numerous sonatas. Now, sonata form is what was developed as the very foundation for symphony as it grew. And sonata form, it always follows the same basic pattern, which is you have a passage that is all of a whole, might be a melody, it can be lots of lovely, lively textures, followed by a second subject. We call them second subject. This is a second section. And that would then move the, the key from one key to another would bring the first half of the movement to a close, at which point there would be a development section which would take elements from both the opening passage and the second passage and uh, play around with it. And it could move into other keys. Uh, it could be quite complex. But in the early days, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't so complicated. You would just play perhaps the melody, the first melody in one key and then play it in another key. And at the end of the development, you would arrive back again at the first and second subjects, the first and second bits. And they could be done as A and B, as happened at the beginning, or they could be done as B and A. Haydn began to explore all of these alternatives. Now, what that did was to give you a feeling of setting off on an adventure, introducing two sections, and then leaving you thinking, well, now what's going to happen? And so the development sections would take you on a bit of a journey. It could be much softer, could be much louder, it could be any number of variations but changing the musical material. It's exactly like a jazz player these days when you riff on a melody and you can go far away, and, uh, but you need to come home. And so this particular sonata form involved starting, having a little bit of a contrast, then developing them both, then coming back and finding the first two subjects again. It was the feeling of coming home again. Mm. And it, it, that's the basis of all symphonic form. For the first movement? Or for yes, the, for the yes, first, for the first movement. movement. 
And then there would be a slow movement. I mean, Haydn's case, he wrote some of the most emotionally pleasing, sad or uh, mellow melodies, which just seemed to be so long, never-ending, with muted strings, strings with mutes on, which gives him a gorgeous colour. Haydn's 44th symphony in E minor is, is nicknamed the trower, the sad, the tragic. But the slow movement is such a wonderful example of Haydn's melodic invention. Its strings are muted, the atmosphere is, is delicate, but the melody has a golden positivity about it. And then the third movement would be traditionally a minuet and a trio. Now in a minuet and trio, you play through the minuet and then you play the trio, then you play the minuet again. So it was all about forms, leaving home, going to see something and then coming back. Would the last movement refer to the first again? Or could yes, you have you ended see, somewhere the, quite the, different? This was the, the, throughout... All of musical history, the last movement of a symphony is the one that has given composers most, most to think about. And last movements in particular have to exceed everything you've heard in the first three movements and to a certain extent conclude it, so take it to a final resting place. So each movement is a journey on its own, out and back. And then the last movement had to be coming home from all three of those previous movements. Do you think composers, and you're a composer, do you think a composer always knows or should know how it, where they're aiming for the very, very end? Or does it sometimes take you away? We love to have the idea of a composer or a playwright or, or a, a poet suddenly snatching an idea out of the air of how they're going to how they're going to develop it or, co or come to a, a, a surprising, even for them, a surprising conclusion? Or do you think people have got that arc set in before they go there? Well, I think it must relate to all the other disciplines in that until you've got into the work a bit, you can't really see the whole journey. And I think it would be extraordinarily rare to come across a symphony where the last movement had been written before any of the others. But Mozart, who, as we know, wrote pretty much copying it down out of his head, so without any footling about, it seemed to just come purely out and he knew, he kind of knew, whereas Beethoven, scritch and scratch and scritch and scratch, and that's not what I meant, that's not good, I'm going to cut, throw that bit away. So he was struggling in a way that maybe Mozart and some other composers didn't have to struggle? Mozart was writing at a time when the form was still intact. Brahms, having seen all the symphonies that Beethoven had written, which extended the possibilities, brought program music into it, brought titles into it, you know, and the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven, mm. it's got a chorus and soloists in the last movement, and it's, it, it has text. I 
Brahms certainly felt unnerved, and to a certain extent, he reverted to the previous forms that Mozart was living within. So when you say Mozart just wrote it down, yes, but it's impossible to imagine that he wrote you know, the last movement of Symphony 39. It's impossible to think that he wrote that before he'd worked out the, the, the slow movement or the, or the first movement. So in a way, all music for a composer is organic and you never quite know where you're going to go in detail. When we see films of composers, and of course we've got to make that huge jump from somebody who writes, whose, whose music is in their head, into a film or play version of it, you always have them at the piano fooling about and hearing something. You know, that's the, that's the ideal form. Look, you're frowning already, I can tell. Because they, they love the idea of you sitting at the piano and going, go to, oh, hey. And in fact, the recent film about them, the Beatles' Get Back and how they were fiddling about and found something, found a hook or a particular phrase they liked. Largely, that's not how composers do it, sitting at a piano and play. They know, you you know. I mean, you, I can remember, Dar sorry, I'm jumping about a bit here, but Daniel Barenboim, when he'd done his Desert Island Discs, and I think it was Sue Lawley at the time, who said, which of these would you take away with you on your island? He said, I wouldn't take any of them. I don't need them. I've got them all in my head. So he didn't need, he didn't need to have anything written down or played. He wanted to take scores. He wanted he, to take he, scores. He wanted to take scores because he, he could read them and could hear them. And could hear them. Yeah. And so composers largely know what's in their head. They don't have to be at the harpsichord or the piano going plinkety plonk, does that work? Which is what we've all been trained to believe. That's what composers Some do. composers have worked at the piano. Stravinsky famously had a big board up on his, up on his piano with manuscript paper and pencil. And some composers do. But it's not a question of having a bit of an improv at, at the piano and thinking, oh, I like that, I'll write that down. Um, I, certainly that's so in, in, what, in the kind of music I'm involved in. I think this is one of the most extraordinary things about music because we speak, human beings tend to speak, and so the idea of writing a play is not, we don't think, terrifically difficult because we know people are speaking. And I say, hello, Stephen, do sit down. Stephen takes a chair. He sits down and says, and how are you today? So these are sort of easy exchanges, which we do. We speak like this. Most people don't have a musical language in their heads. So we can't even begin to imagine how you could set about writing a tune, let alone a sonata, let alone a suite or a symphony. This seems sort of beyond our ken, actually. Look, I mean, Paul McCartney, one of the greatest songwriters ever, said that things came to him. Now, I don't think he would be improvising. I think he was thinking in a certain way what type of song he was looking for. And if you think about it, every one of the Beatles songs is different. Yeah. So that didn't come about by simply improvising. That was, that was thinking and knowing a vast amount of repertoire that other people knew. The um, great, they call him the fifth Beatle sometimes, the late George Martin, who was so much part of the Beatles records, introduced them to the sounds of different instruments because they were, you know, the four mop-headed lads from Liverpool who played on the guitar and drums. He introduced them to the sounds of different things and that yeah. seemed to open... He opened more and more doors. Yeah. When somebody like Beethoven is sitting down to write a symphony, he knows all the instruments he's got. Do you think he would have liked a marimba or a saxophone? 
every composer, if you think about it, developed instruments that were available to them in their time. They pushed them to extremities. Bach is intensely difficult to play. You've got to be very technically skilled to do it. Players from uh, 50 years before Bach would never have had such music put up in front of them. Does the instrumentation change it enormously? Because I'm thinking of things that people are so familiar with, they might not even know who it's by, but... The piece of Dvorak's New World Symphony, which is the, the boy pushing the, the Hovis, I think it is. But, and people hear it and you just think it's the Hovis music. Little boy on a bike and going up the hill, that steep little hill somewhere and old England and so on. If, you, if that had been played, because I think they play the symphonic version to back that up. But if it had been played just on the piano, it might not have had the same impact. So well, is the choice of instruments, yeah. Barlow walks over to the piano. When it's played on the Koranglay, it has a completely different colour and yes. accompanied by strings in a certain register. That's all about orchestration, but it's very close to your point that composers hear the instruments at the same time as they have their inspiration. Yes. Composers do that. Arrangers are different people who will arrange something for for another, another group. And symphonies are a terribly good example of, of um, composers who absolutely understand what the orchestra is capable of and what form uh, is satisfying. I mean, I mean, look at it. Look, look, all the way through the 19th century, as it grew, as the symphony grew, Mendelssohn wrote five symphonies. Felix Mendelssohn, one, one is called the Italian Symphony, with a Tarantella as the last movement, once again putting titles on. Um, and he also wrote his last symphony, I think, called the Reformation. But after Mendelssohn, you have a long passage all the way to Tchaikovsky, who wrote six of the most well-known symphonies. Well, at least three of them are. And Mahler, of course, who took us well into the realms of what a big modern symphony can be. And they're, they're long. Mahler and Bruckner between them. So the symphony was a place where particular orchestral inspiration was put into a satisfying form that, while still being abstract, took you on extensive journeys. Tell me why you chose Mahler 7 in particular. 
Well, it's absolutely amazing when you hear that symphony for the first time. Can you imagine it the first time this was ever performed? Because it, it sets off with that rather upsetting funeral march feeling. And then the first major theme is taken by the tenor horn or euphonium. It's absolutely unique. And the audience must have, must have thought, what world are we going into? Joanna here. Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries, and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much. There's no limit, really, to the length of a symphony as long as you can maintain a feeling of the journey. So a journey through the movements. And people have talked about a symphony being a musical universe all of its own. And the great composers composed symphonies that are all radically different from each other. If you look at Beethoven, the first is very reminiscent of Haydn. The third is the enormous Eroica, which has a, a last movement that feels like a fantasia. You, you can't really ever guess what's going to come next. But one melody is there all the time, and occasionally the, the music comes back to the melody and you think, oh, right, we're there. But then he's off again. The fourth is, for me, one of, one of the most special because it combines some of Beethoven's sublime softness and gentleness with huge ebullience, wonderful energy that scampers at a presto that you can barely believe is possible. The fifth, well, we know, we all know the fifth. The famous. And that starts not on a beat, doesn't it? You have to go. No, it starts off the beat. It's a conductor's nightmare. Well, a young conductor's nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> because why? Well, because it starts off the beat. The whole string section has to play. So to start off a whole orchestra off the beat together in the first bar set the tempo, put the downbeat down and let the orchestra do it is, is, is the only answer to that. And the sixth is a glorious pastoral, which must be one of his most well-known. Extraordinary. Ravishing. In another world. And seven, that famous seven, with the very slow second movement, spooky. Funereal. Spooky. Yeah. It's something of a funeral march, actually.
And then nine, of course, which has just become legendary. Yes, all very different. He different was going to worlds. do a tenth, wasn't he? Going to do a tenth, wasn't he? Commissioned by London to do a tenth. No, the ninth was commissioned by oh. the Royal Philharmonic Society. But the talk was, if London. he hadn't died, he would have come to London to write a tenth. I... Or was that made up a bit? Sadly, one can only imagine where he would have gone after the ninth. Because if you look at all of his symphonies, they're all radically different. And the ninth completely breaks the bounds of any symphony up to that point. The last movement is a vast recitative and choral praise to joy, bidding the world to be joyful. So where could he have gone? He would have broken the forms. He would have added extra dimensions to it. Who knows? Do you have, do you have a favourite symphony, by anybody? Oh, God, no, I, you have to answer. I hate it when you say favourites because every time I mention one thing, I I say no, it can't. I can't count that out. Look, I love Sibelius symphonies. They too are whole worlds in each of them, and so different. Sibelius symphonies, Mahler symphonies, I adore. Bruckner, I I'm very partial to. Because he he seems to be in tune with massive scale pictures, mountainous musical ideas that you take quite a long time to scale, to climb to the top, and long slow movements that just literally stop time with rich colours and... I think those are hewn out of rock. Do some symphonies, I mean, I think Sibelius always pulls in the north. You always feel he couldn't have been a Spaniard. But if they... But if they or is that just because we you know were, Sibelius If you were is... told to know Sibelius was actually born on the Banda Islands, would you think it was northern? Chopin, who we always think of as French. I don't know why we just do with him. Chopin? But, but he was, in fact, Polish, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. So we got that wrong at once. You know, you go, oh, so he's not a French composer with his beautiful piano music and his affair with Georges Sand. <clears throat> not so. He was Polish and adored by the French. So I don't think it, uh, nationality probably isn't in there, is it? No, but no. Can it's... I just say something about Dvorak, or who Peter Sellers referred to in one of his <laughs> best of Sellers, for example, Diversion Rundek. Diversion Rundek. Uh, Dvorak. When he wrote the New World Symphony, it was for and of America. Yes, and it, he was, when you hear it, I don't hear America in there at all. The reason the Americans invited him to go and take up a position in New York was that he had done such amazing things for Czech music. He was regarded as a true bohemian Czech composer. And indeed, Throughout his music, there, there, there are Czech tunes and melodies and rhythms. So when the Americans invited him, they, they hoped that he would, in fact, do the same for American music. So the New World Symphony, I, I don't really feel that there's a description of America in there. But you can see that they would have loved it simply because of the character of it.
As a conductor, are there, rather like for an actor, you know, you get to the stage where you can play King Lear or a young actor, I'm talking about actors rather than women, who might think now's the time to do, to give them my Hamlet. Is there something as a conductor that you fairly hold back from until you feel you're mature enough to, to conduct a particular piece of work? Yes, of course. Which uh, ones? Uh, Which ones well, would have scared you to begin with? Well, Not scared, but, you know. Mahler's Ninth, which is, it feels so so full of farewell. And at the end, it drifts into eternity, really. It's a very powerful, very powerful, deeply felt symphony, full of Mahler's struggles. There's pain in it. He had good cause to, to feel pain. Have you conducted it? No, you see, I I, <clears throat> I was going to do it in Sicily and Palermo, but just at that time, as I was about to go, I'd done Bruckner Eight with them. I loved it, and I was going to go back a year later to do Mahler Nine, but they had terrible financial problems, and the orchestra hadn't been paid for six months, and so that concert was cancelled. So yes, there are certain pieces, and also Mahler Three which again is on an epic scale. It's very long with text and very deeply felt stuff and trying to bind those things together, I do think needs experience rather than just a flash of, oh, I love that, I'll have a go at that. Because, of course, one could go in simply to enjoy yourself, but the older you get as a conductor, the more you want to see a form and work out what's consistent in in a way of doing it. And to be perfectly honest, with recordings available, like Bernard Heiting's recording of Mahler Three, um, Don't need uh, to do it anymore. He's done it. Well, well you, how can one possibly compare... But that's not a good attitude. No, because, because we, we want to one sit must try. in a live music hall, you know, hall and listen to somebody. One must keep trying. Yes, we've got to keep on trying. And people will be hearing it for the first time. And people, you knew Bernard Heitink, but a lot of people, now that he's gone, won't have known him. And a new generation will come up and his name will be in the past, like Toscanini, who was one of the, <laughs> the great flash names. And now is fading away. People go, I don't know how to spell that. You know, so we all fade. We've, we come and go like the ripples on a stream. So that's the importance of doing live music. And that's the thrill of live performance of any kind, is actually being there while somebody does it. And you must have, as a young man, and a fairly, if I may say so, fairly flash young man, you must have picked up the... Sorry. No, no, there we are. 
Is that a faintly well, barbed well, what about when you, reference when you decide... to my being from Essex, by any chance? <laughs> no, it's to do with you saying that you were going to play, what was it, American Rhapsody or Rhapsody in Blue, or what, what were you going to play? You decided to play it, and Alan Wick said, you're sort of over my dead body, and you did do Well, it. he told me to come up and play it to him, and I hadn't really practised at that point. And, and so I went up and played it to him, and he simply closed the piano keyboard <laughs> and said to me, well, I'm coming on Sunday week, and I'll be the first to throw the cabbages and tomatoes. <laughs> so I practised. <laughs> and got away with it, I think so. Well, no, I, yeah, I played it, yeah. But we always look back. I read of Judy Dench the other day, suddenly thinking after she'd done something... Oh, I, I would have done that differently. I should have done that differently. Now, she's in her 80s, and we always look back and go, oh, I could have just... I know, and it's always in your head how you should have done something. Do you still have that about some of your performances? You think, oh, I now understand of that. Of course. Oh, I could have done it. No, but that's the benefit of coming back to pieces. Mm. I conducted a lot of Beethoven and Mozart in my 20s and at Cambridge University amazingly fortunately, and every time I come back to them, I realise that I now know so much more about them and I wouldn't do what I did then. And and the joy of coming back to operas or or big pieces. I've done a few Bruckner symphonies where I can't wait to do them again because no matter how much you thought you knew, your years, your own years in between, and certainly your knowledge and your feeling about a piece will naturally change. And you can't ever do a piece the same anyway. You know, you can't repeat a performance. Everything's live. So I love coming back to things. I've done The Marriage of Figaro now about eight times, the opera. And with Cenerentola, half a dozen. Bohème, I've done four or five times. And I can't wait to do those pieces again. There's always more, and you're never the same. Do you always, this is just a practical note, do you always conduct symphonies, i.e., so that's a big full orchestra, really, isn't it, a symphony, usually? Yes, it, it, the, the orchestra's got bigger and bigger. Do you use a baton for orchestras? Because I've noticed that sometimes you conduct, but only with your hands. Is that for, what, smaller groups or choirs? or what? Are, why do you sometimes have a stick and sometimes yes, not? You, the baton really came into use because of the size of orchestras. That's not to say that some people like Valerie Gergiev, who conducts nearly all the time, not all the time, but nearly all the time, without a stick. Um, so the baton came in for that reason. And generally, with smaller groups, I will ponder whether a stick is a stick is necessary. I don't think I mean this, but is it easier to conduct an opera or a symphony? Symphonies require something other and operas. They are two distinctly different types. To conduct a big romantic symphony well, you have to get very deeply into questions of consistency. So everything must be consistent. Daniel Barenboim said this, conducting is all about consistency, i.e. achieving an interpretation that is consistent. It's never too violent or too gentle, but has a balance. I really love doing symphonic work. It engages the intellect, the mind, much more than operas do, which, uh, which are feats of another order. 
Well, I'd like to thank you, Maestro, for sharing these thoughts with us. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you so As much. Always. That's the symphony done and dusted. Would you like to choose for me a symphony we could go out on? <laughs> I'd love to. How about the opening of Bruckner's wonderful Seventh Symphony, which is the most miraculous opening of any symphony, really. And it's a real beginning to a huge mountainous climb. episode you've heard the following music Haydn's Symphony in C the first movement performed by the Philharmonia Hungarica and conducted by Antal Dorati and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited Haydn's Symphony in E minor third movement performed by the Philharmonia Hungarica and conducted by Antal Dorati and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited Beethoven Symphony No. 9 in D minor, Opus 125, Final Movement. Performed by Janet Perry, Agnes Baltzar, Vincent Cole, Jose Van Damme with the Berlin Philharmonic, Herbert von Karajan, Werner Singverin and Helmut Froschauer, and the record company was Deutsche Grammophon Berlin. Antonin Dvorak Symphony No. 9 in E minor, From the New World, Opus 95 performed by Stephen Barlow. Antonin Dvorak, Symphony No. 9 in E minor, Opus 95, From the New World, Second Movement, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Sir George Salty, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. Mahler's Symphony No. 7 in E minor, the first movement, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Claudio Abado, and the record company was Deutsche Grammophon Berlin. Beethoven Symphony No. 4 in B-flat major, Opus 60, Final Movement, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Joseph Cripps, and the record company was Prominence Records. Beethoven Symphony No. 5 in C minor, Opus 67, the First Movement, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Joseph Cripps, and the record company was Prominence Records. Beethoven Symphony No. 6 in F major, Opus 68, Pastoral, Final Movement, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Joseph Cripps, and the record company was Prominence Records. Beethoven Symphony No. 7 in A Major, Opus 92, Second Movement, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Joseph Cripps, and the record company was Prominence Records. Beethoven Symphony No. 9 in D Minor, Opus 125, Choral, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Joseph Cripps, and the record company was Prominence Records. Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 9 in E minor, Opus 95, From the New World, First Movement, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Sir George Salty, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. Mahler's Symphony No. 9 in D, the Final Movement, performed by the Berlin Philharmonic and conducted by Herbert von Karajan. And the record company was Deutsche Grammophon Berlin. Mahler's Symphony No. 3 in D minor, Nicht mehr so breit, 
performed by the New York Philharmonic and conducted by Leonard Bernstein. And the record company was Deutsche Grammophon. Bruckner's Symphony No. 7 in E Major, First Movement, performed by Daniel Barenboim and the Berlin Philharmoniker, and the record company was Teldec Classics International. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. <laughs>